Empire is brought to you by Avalanche and Paraswap. We will hear more about them later in the show. Hey guys, before we jump into this one, uh, a pretty special guest that I brought on, uh, Mr. Michael Ippolito is my co-founder who has uh, joined this one. Um, we wanted to bring Anatoly on the show because he's got just a really, really deep technical understanding of what's happening, obviously, on Solana. Uh, he's the CEO of Solana Labs, but also just a really technical understanding of what's happening in the entire DeFi ecosystem. Uh, but outside the technical aspect, and kind of understanding that he brings to the table, I think he has a really nuanced understanding and vision for what community looks like uh, across these different protocols and, and kind of honestly just a take on what the future looks like. Uh, he's been building tech for like two decades now, and he j I think he just has a really good vision of the future. So yeah, I don't know. I, I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation with Anatoly. I handed the mic off to Mike for a lot of this. And yeah, Mike, I don't know if you have anything else to add here. No, I thought he was great. I, I agree. So many people offer their opinions on this space, uh, myself and you included, without having like a deep technical understanding. And this guy just knows how it's all built from the ground up. And, uh, you know, and sometimes when you talk to engineers like that, they get super, super technical. But he has not only a great understanding of like how it works on a just a super base, almost like atomic level. But I just got all these questions, you know, about narratives. Like, is it uh, L1 more is going to continue? Uh, like, how is community built on this space? And he's had nuanced, thoughtful answers about every single one we probably overuse the analogy of religion and cities in this one so get ready for some pretty high-minded uh, philosophical fluff in yes there too. exactly uh, i thought yes, it worked i, I thought, thought it worked. worked anyways guys if you guys enjoyed this uh, if you guys enjoyed bringing mike on the show we're thinking about doing it more so email me or tweet at me uh slide through the dms and let me know if you enjoyed mike if you hated him don't let him know don't let me know man don't let me know. i'm too i'm too frail <laughs> but you can but you can let me know you can let me know. So anyways, guys, enjoy, uh, enjoy the conversation with Anatoly. As crypto just kind of grows and matures, it'll outpace the rest of the world. And the layer one with the most users is going to be the one that's going to be the layer one. All right, folks, we are, we are, uh, we are here with the CEO of Solana Labs, Anatoly Yakovenko. Um, but also, excitingly enough, this is the first episode where my lovely co-founder, Mr. Mike Ippolito, has joined me on an episode. He got so excited when he saw Anatoly on the calendar that he decided to jump on. So, Mike, welcome yeah. to the show. I'm crashing. I know. Yeah. I'm going to try not to ruin it. I'm sorry. And it's, it's going to be a worse experience now, but you're stuck with the both of us. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just do what you can. I'm down. Let's do this. Uh, uh, can I actually jump in here first, Jason? <laughs> See, now I'm already interrupting you on your uh, I, I I got a question for you, Anatoly, because I... Um, you know, a lot of folks are probably familiar with Solana at this point, Solana Summer, but uh, I heard you tell this anecdote that was just so relatable to me uh, as a founder. And I actually, I talked to this, uh, to Jason about this before the show, but, um, you know, in this interview, I heard you describing when you initially thought of the idea of Solana, which was like two coffees and one beer in, you felt manic for a week. Like you couldn't sleep. You were so excited. And, uh, you know, we haven't designed any groundbreaking protocols, but I can remember various points where I'm like lying in bed, so excited, can't sleep. Uh, so what was that initial idea that just got you so fired up, ready to design Solana? How's it all going from then? <laughs> so it was really like that uh, that first uh, like idea of what proof of history, what, what became proof of history was really the verifiable delay function part, which the irony is that if I would have been able to find like the folks like, you know, Dan Bonet that have been working on this and realize that they were already like, you know, generations ahead of what I was thinking, I probably would have gave it up, right? Like, oh, okay, I, I thought of something, I thought it was cool, but 
there's you know people at Stanford that are way smarter than me already building this. But it was really this idea of using um, SHA-256 as a way to measure time, as a puzzle that uh, represents like data, like you can actually read the data. And then from that, you can deduce that somebody somewhere spent real time generating that data. And there's no way to break it without building a you know bigger and better fab. And it's kind of like, why that hit me so hard, I don't know. But like, I think part of it is that, um, you know, there is no mathematical era of time, right? The Einstein's equations work forwards and backwards. This is one of those like mysteries, right? And it's, uh, it's kind of weird to think about if you kind of get really, really down to the core of it. Um, and uh, yeah, that red pilled me for, for like a week. I, I felt like, I don't know, maybe it took some <laughs> mushrooms or something. But <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, to two people who are, at least I'll speak for myself, not being super technically inclined, uh, like it's just so interesting that you kind of thought of this idea and that initial idea about how to, um, you know, do consensus on a blockchain led to what is now Solana, right? So when you were kind of thinking of this in your head, did you have Solana kind of mapped out? You're like, this could be a viable challenger to Ethereum, like kind of walk us through the time from that initial uh, light bulb moment to where you are now. It was really that that realization that there's a, a way to track time, like in a, in a trustless, cryptographically secure way. In that initial moment that like Spark was like, oh, there's a way to, to track time. And I think because it came to me kind of in, in like this self-discovered way was what made it really powerful. I think if I would have read it, like, you know, some abstract out of coming out of Stanford, I would have just went over my head, you know, like I would have missed it. But I think that was that kick that made me go and, you know, start Solana and like convince a bunch of people later on to join me was uh, was really that I think I thought it, you know, I thought it myself, thought it first. <laughs> it's a big idea. Um, I've got like a whole bunch of questions yeah. for you, actually, because uh, this space, like having been in crypto now for you know, four or so years, I don't think it's ever been moving at the pace that it is. Um, and one thing I'd love to get your perspective on is just this idea of like the layer one wars, right? Like layer ones have been such uh, a huge narrative. Thanks, honestly, probably to Solana Summer. I feel like Solana <laughs> Summer kicked that off, right? Yeah, yeah. You guys like own that narrative. Uh, so first of all, congratulations. Um, but there are kind of like two schools of thought right now, right? Which is that, uh, you know, there's, I don't want to say ETH Maxi, but there's like the the ETH Maxi sort of crowd, which is like everything's going to be on uh, Ethereum and they're going to be kind of scaling solutions like L2s built on that. And then there's like another crowd of folks. And I think like Kyle Samani and the folks over at Multicrown have done a great job of like propagating maybe the alternative version where it's like, actually, there are going to be competitive layer ones that are going to compete with Ethereum and maybe they win on some use cases, but we're heading towards a multi-chain future. Um, how do you view this whole world and everything sort of playing out? I guess like what's your high level view on on what the layer one level of crypto looks like in the next like? five to 10 years. I think the, the value of the stuff is not, is not in the tech itself, but in the shared state. Kind of like, I don't know if you guys ever played World of Warcraft, Ultima Online. The bigger the shard, the more people all in the same community, the more interesting that thing is, right? And the layer one with the most users is going to be the one that's going to be the layer one. And I think when we were designing Solana, in like and, and building it in you know 2018 2019 the thought that we had was that how do we get the largest number of people all in the same one giant game single game shard no no sharding was the name of the solana podcast initially so 
Stuff that's like layer two is a compromise on that vision, right? That's all it is. Mm. And that compromise, the mm. reason why people make that compromise is because they believe that they can't achieve um, that same performance without sacrificing decentralization. And where we're coming in is saying, no, that's bullshit. You can achieve the same level or higher level of decentralization at a cheaper cost to users with a much larger set all participating in, at the same time. Like we, we, we're fighting religious wars about layer ones like we did over the Linux file systems because I think what, it, what we can imagine can be built in this thing, right? We have this like idea that this technology is so powerful, it's gonna change the world. And this is the one I'm betting on. And that is such a like, high, like religious bet that you're not making it with any practical kind of like objective measurement. Like the, but with something like a Orca or Serum or Uniswap, I can only hold X amount of those tokens and I'm using that product. And those are the things where like that actual social activity of me being an LP and interacting with other people occur. On the layer one, it's just sending bits around, right? Like it's not actually me interacting with other humans. There's nodes that are running consensus, but that's a very non-like human inter interactive activity. So I think like the bullish case for the, for the single chain world is that the fastest, cheapest, most decentralized chain will probably have the largest number of cities on it. But the bearish case for it is that the cities can move. Like the users of social networks, they're tied together with cryptography. That state, as long as that state is available, you can pop it from one to the other. So I feel like, yeah, that the, the one with the most users, that's going to be the one that wins it. And this is not like a not, that does not exclude a multi-chain world. You're still going to have Binance Smart Chains. You're probably going to see Stripe, Stripe, Stripe Smart Chains, you know, whatever, uh, Amazon Smart Chains. All that stuff is going to happen. But that one giant shared experience, I feel like is going to be the, that one layer one that wants it. And when you say winning it, like right now, people say layer one wars because it really does feel like a war. Everyone's doing anything they can to basically drive apps on top of the layer ones, which then drives users. Does it look more like maybe Apple versus Android where there's kind of two operating systems and they're always duking it out? Or does it look more like a Google where Google owns the entire market share of, of the search space? Is there one or are there, or are there multiple? So the war right now, like, uh, the, the interesting thing is that we're not a, at a zero sum war. Like it's not like an Ethereum user can't all, also have a Solana public key, right? As a Solana address, like all those things that can easily move from one to the other. So it's more that where are you going to start seeing network effects outgrow from the user activity outgrow like growth from just the, you know, the market growing on its own. And it's been really, really slow everywhere. Like Ethereum has 10 million users, I think, in DeFi right now, altogether. Phantom, I think, is adding 100,000 a, a week or something. It's getting close to a million. Um, is that million users? Does that mean that they switched from Ethereum to Solana? Or are these new users, right? Like, we're, we're still kind of not at that, like, zero-sum war stage. So in a lot of ways, it's too early to tell what, what the end state is going to look like. Um, but I think the war, if there is a war, is not so much for the users or for... That kind of growth is really for entrepreneurs, like, you know, really smart folks from Aave, from Uniswap, they picked building on Ethereum first and that they're going to be there forever. Like it's going to be hard for them to switch to a new platform and 
that's who we're really fighting for. Like, who are those like crazy enough people that think that they can get teach a billion people cryptography? <laughs> like, you got to be pretty crazy, right, to believe it. <laughs> the people who want to eat glass, as you like to yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah, sounds unappealing. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this: one, like, personal theory of mine, like uh, a trade-off. I think that Ethereum made somewhere along the way, right? Especially with this kind of new hard fork and EIP one five five nine, etc is they decided to favor ETH, the asset, right? One of the knocks on ETH has always been, uh, you're not going to know its inflation schedule. By the way, it's like super inflationary. And it was incredibly inflationary. They changed that. It's now deflationary. That's favorable for ETH, the asset. But it's not really favorable for users of the ecosystem of ETH, right? It's tremendously expensive. So they made this, this great decision for one part of their stakeholders, right? The, the holders of ETH and people who had a lot of ETH. But it really, it created a market opportunity, which I would actually argue that you guys at Solana exploited, like you crushed it. You kind of saw that and you really filled a huge void. Do you see you guys eventually having to make the same decision? Because in a weird way, you're like investors are also kind of your users. Like, How do you think about making that trade-off? So I guess as long as I have any influence, <laughs> it's going to be uh, technology that minimizes the cost to the users and so because this is all this is right this this network right it's like this set of protocols it's no different than like if i had a a switch just like a packet switch that guaranteed that everybody that wants to receive this message always received it it's a very boring thing right and it, the way you implement this thing is you replicate this message you know thousand times right now two thousand or whatever how do we get it to fifty thousand right like and how do we make sure that that happens as cheaply, as fast as possible, that information doesn't get censored, it propagates as close to the speed of light as possible. All these things are like an optimizations that we do are designed to reduce the cost to users, uh, right? Either, either the network gets cheaper because it's more bandwidth efficient, more hardware efficient, or decentralization and censorship resistant grows. So the benefit they derive from it, if they're doing something that involves, involves those things grows. So I think that from an investor's perspective and like I'm not trying to be coy or anything because I'm like afraid to say the wrong thing it's just like think of it in Silicon Valley terms imagine you're competing with somebody that'll sacrifice everything for growth <laughs> to be cheaper and faster than yeah. you right like take what you have right now and then like well if we made this thing cheaper and faster and sacrificed you know whatever investors want right now would we be able to survive against that thing Right. If the answer is no, then I'm not going to make it <laughs> like and that that is a, not so much like I'm thinking as an investor or growth. I'm just like a, I don't know, competitive like engineer. Right. How do I make how do I build the best technology? Right. This is the ultimate question. I you know, one thing I like really struggle with and honestly, like listening to Bankless, I don't know if you listen to that podcast. It's a great one. And, you know, one of my I, I'm a big fan of Bitcoin, but one of my problems with that particular corner of crypto is that in my opinion they've let ideology overrun um kind of pragmatic decision making uh, especially when it comes to investments and uh i think they're like how do you think about the role of ideology in building something like a network because on the one hand if you zoom way out and you're like okay you're building a nation state right we want to be pragmatic but there are also like core values that all of us subscribe to in this community like america as a country part of what gives it value are these ideological cultural values that we all share and like we trade off right in a, in a weird way like we're kind of decentralized when it comes to governance as opposed to like china right who is more like command and control if they want to do shit they don't really need to ask anyone's permission um and in a way that's very pragmatic but 
there are kind of trade-offs that are associated with that. So I guess on a weird like philosophical level, do you feel like you're making trade-offs at all you know, with, with Solana? Uh, is it all upside? Like, I don't know. What do you think about it? So I think like Bitcoin really picked this simplest possible thing that can maximize hash power. That is like if we had like the mm. simplest, dumbest, easiest to understand coin, right, that can maximize hash power, that's really what they're going after. And I think the religion around the store of value and the self-sovereign money works there, right? Like, and that's what's driving that technology choice. I think what's interesting about ETH2, I don't know if you, you should listen to the, uh, my blockchain debate with, with Dunkard. It was kind of like a, a setup, right? Like, mm. but mm. Um, what Ethereum is really, they yeah, no, it was, no it, it, you, <laughs> debates have to focus on something. So I knew what I was getting myself into. But mm. Ethereum 2 is really trying to minimize the cost to an individual to participate in securing the network. So this idea of an honest minority that can be that hardest to destroy replica, right? You may, you as a single Ethereum validator that's running in a Raspberry Pi, you may not be able to recover the entire state, but because there's so many of you, right? There's such a long tail that it's so cheap to run that the cost to destroy all of them becomes harder and harder. And that is a different vision than where what we have a religion about is this information symmetry idea for trading. Literally, the first thing, as soon as I decided, okay, I'm going to build a blockchain, the first use case that I thought of was trading. Their slide deck tagline, as dumb as it sounds, literally said Solana is blockchain at NASDAQ speed. Because this idea that I imagined in my mind was, if, we, if this is possible, right, if it's possible to build a, a really fast blockchain, well, what is the fastest version of that? Well, it's bits of information that propagate at speed of light through fiber. They're competing with news, right? They literally travel as fast as news travels. And it's an open, permissionless system for data to flow. That means that it's a thing that can compete with like CME, not NASDAQ, NYSE for price discovery. Like it doesn't have to have sub one millisecond trading. It actually just needs to be as fast as the news and not give anybody an advantage. And we can guarantee both of those with just, you know, hardware and consensus. And that, that to me was like, okay, I don't know if that's going to be the most important use case, but I know that's a use case that is important to somebody. <laughs> and uh, let's, let's just build for that. So this idea of like information symmetry, like maximizing real-time censorship resistance, this is our religion, right? If you had to pick like what is Solana's religion is that, is that, which is different from, I think, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And it, to me, it seems like there's kind of this Pareto efficient choices that people are making, uh, at least like these three major groups have made. Um, and we'll see how it plays out, right? I don't know which one is going to be the most important with the most users that's going to kind of be the one layer one. Um, but I suspect it's the one that's closest to, you know, speed electric fiber and the cheapest cost to the users. <laughs> it's like... It's almost like you're seeing, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and everything play out in real time. And, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, when like the gloves are off, it's kind of like, I mean, even to use that example of uh, government and everything, right? Um, all ideology in government breaks down if people don't have food. Yep. You know what I mean? So like, at a certain at a certain point, like, okay, I prefer to live in a place that respects my freedom, but, uh, you know, what supersedes that is being fed. <laughs> and I'll pretty much do whatever I want, you know, to get fed. And... Um, I, you know, I kind of have had that experience, you know, operating in the Solana ecosystem versus ETH, not making any job, but like, it's just so much 
faster, man. It's just so much faster and cheaper uh, at a certain point. Like, God, it just works. Uh, and you're like, damn, this is, this is a nice product. Well, I really do think that, like, there are, there are arguments that happen in bull markets that are quite different than bear markets, right? Like, in a bull mm, market, everything great. works, right? And everyone's making money. And so, like, to tie it back to Maslow's hierarchy, like, you start thinking about these things that are really idealistic, right? Which, you know, we're, we're operating in this industry. We all love the concept of decentralization. But, like, I can guarantee... Like I know what people don't really give a crap about in a bear market is decentralization as much as the, and I'll, I'm sure I'll get a ton of shit on Twitter for saying this on the podcast, but like people just care about different things in a bear market compared to a bull market. But I honestly disagree with you. I think it's easier right now to get traction with less decentralization. Uh, in a bear market, you really don't have users and you're really kind of, you're building for your core community, the true believers. Mm. And the only way you win those people over is with a vision, with like, you got to have something real there. It's all the stuff that was all bullshit died in the bear market. It was a great, <laughs> the, 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 the purge, you know, it, it was great. You know, the teams that actually were heads down, great. like, had, had sleep had more really, than seven hours a yeah. night. <laughs> Strong conviction is, is what survives it. Empire is proud to be supported by Avalanche. There is a layer one war heating up in crypto and Avalanche is at the center of it. Avalanche is one of the fastest smart contract platforms in the industry. I've been looking into the ecosystem recently and I'm honestly amazed by how fast it's growing. Here are three reasons why I'm so intrigued by Avalanche. Number one, Curve and Aave, two of the biggest DeFi protocols are in testing right now for Avalanche integrations. Number two, new projects. These are not just NFT clones. AMM knockoffs and lending protocols. These are new projects, NFT projects, play to earn games, really, really interesting stuff happening in the Avalanche ecosystem. And number three, Binance just re-enabled C-Chain integration. What in the world does this mean? This means that you, the user, can directly withdraw to your MetaMask, which previously was a pretty big user bottleneck. Thank you, Avalanche for sponsoring Empire. We are going to continue to explore Avalanche in future episodes. Hope you enjoy it. I would recommend that you do the same. Empire is proud to be supported by Paraswap. Paraswap is one of the leading DEX aggregators in crypto. Let's say you're booking a flight. You would never go directly to an airline, right? You'd never go directly to United or Delta. You'd obviously go to Google Flights or Expedia or Kayak or Booking.com. That's what Paraswap does for DeFi. Paraswap, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see the platform. Paraswap makes swapping easier, it makes it faster, it makes it cheaper by aggregating more than 80 different DEXs. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Uniswap, Sushi, Balancer, uh, Bancor into one single interface. You can use Paraswap on ETH, Polygon, as you can see here, BSC, they recently launched Avalanche a few weeks ago, pretty exciting. If you are a trader listening to this, you are losing money by not using Paraswap. And excitingly enough, if you're a company or a platform looking to access the swapping or the yield capabilities of DEXs, you can now use Paraswap's APIs to integrate into your platform to get the full power of the DEX aggregator into your platform. So head on over to paraswap.io. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see how simple it is to use. Just plug in, let's say I wanna swap you know, 0.2 ETH, for USDT, you can see how simple it is. Just plug that in right there and it aggregates over 80 different DEXs. So head on over to Paraswap, P-A-R-A-S-W-A-P dot I-O to use the platform today. All right, let's get back to the show. You know, 
talking about the difference between how people think in bull versus bear markets, one observation that I've always kind of had is, you know, when you get these people who are like so emotional promoting one token or something, they're like, start listing all these technical reasons. They're like, well, it does this and this and this. And they're like, this is what I care about. And I'm like, you don't give a shit about that. You don't care about that at all. I bet you don't even understand what you're talking about. You know, you're just like it because it makes money and you had to like, it made you rich and you have to like back into a rationalization, a justification of why that is. And my evidence to back that up is that when there was the bear market, nobody cared about any of that. Nobody cared about any of that stuff. So, yeah, it's just kind of interesting, man. It it's, is. Um, Zaki and I and a few other folks were still arguing about the same shit on crypto Twitter in the bear market or in the bull market. So <laughs> <laughs> well, you're one of the rare ones, man. You're one of the rare ones. Um, what are some of the things that you have really high convictions on in this industry? Th this is more of a my conviction in, in like tech or engineering. Um, if, if, if you're not building something that is, uh, gets better at exponential pace with Moore's law, like actually when NVIDIA ships twice as many cores or whatever, or AMD ships twice as many cores, if your thing doesn't get twice as good, you're not building a technology, you're just doing service stuff. You're a service company. Mm. And the technologies that have feature overlap with your service that get cheaper and faster at an exponential pace, they will eat you up. So this is like kind of what I observed in my like 15 years or uh, 20 years at this point of engineering is that like human development, like building software that's complicated, it's a multi-year process. It's like at least two years to get anything interesting out. This is why people are like bitching at ETH2. Why isn't it faster? Why isn't it merged on? Why aren't rollups like perfect yet? Why don't we have any ZK stuff? It's because those timelines are human driven. You have one person that can do this one complicated task, no matter how much money you can throw at him, it's still one person. And you'd be surprised that a lot of this really complex shit, just one person driving it. <laughs> In the world of 8 billion people, you cannot parallelize that one really complex problem. So mm. 18 months out, there's hardware is twice as fast. If whatever other team just like, okay, we'll just bet that that's gonna happen anyways, it will optimize and parallelize it, by the time you're done with this really complicated thing, that other feature is already twice as fast and half the cost. You're gonna die, right, really quickly. So this is really what I kind of like, you know, if I'm driving Solana development or architecture, it's really towards that. How do we make sure that we optimize this thing such that whenever hardware gets cheaper or, or more scalable, the thing just gets faster on its own. I've got a, I've got a random question for you here. Um, one you, have things, of, you have a lot of random yeah. questions. <laughs> I'm basically a walking collection of questions and quotes from other podcasts in case that isn't already apparent. Um, so this like idea of like kind of the copy pasta stuff, right. In general, which is, um, you know, I, I have kind of opinions on this because as an entrepreneur, right, like it, you, you kind of feel like I built this thing and I want it to be my thing. Um, and I put in the hard work and the legwork here and like you deserve some of the upside. And one of the like best and kind of worst things at the same time about open source that it's open for anyone and they can copy it and tweak it and literally change one little feature, get a community. And in a lot of ways, that's great because the iteration process happens like that just so quickly. It's not without its kind of downsides at the same time. And there's something just almost mentally offensive about that as well. Um, what are your thoughts on that whole everything kind of playing out on that level? Competition in open source is like great. The Linux BSD folks, you know, two separate camps. Sounds like they, sounds like they hated each other at one point on, on mailing list. 
but they're all working on the, on the interesting problems and they drive each other, right? Like somebody builds BSD jails that ends up as like names, namespaces in, in Linux. And now you have Docker, right? Like, you know, multi-billion dollar company. Doesn't it, doesn't it make the projects or the organizations or the companies behind these products just focus more and more on community instead of on the actual tech build, it feels like? Because if you think about... If you think about something like JP Morgan versus Bank of America versus Wells Fargo, they're all using the exact same tech, but they all spend billions of dollars a year to keep that tech alive. And so it, who, who eats the cost for the billion dollars? It's the users, obviously. And it hurts the bottom line of the company, which then gets thrown back at the users. So if you think about it, it's like, what if JP Morgan can build, build the tech, Bank of America just copy it, and then that forces JP Morgan to focus more on the user itself. Is that... A decent way to think about it? Like, why did so many people in the 90s build, were working on Linux? It was literally to, uh, the, the meme was avoid the Microsoft tax. Like, I can buy a PC, personal computer that doesn't run Microsoft. Even though Microsoft was the cheapest operating system in the world that you could buy with money. It was not free enough compared to Linux, right? <laughs> so it was, it was like that idea, like, how do we, how do we break this monopoly? was really what drove people and Microsoft was like trying to squash it with lawsuits and like uh, you know aggressive kind of like uh, bundling of, of windows with everything but at the end of the day if they actually embraced that technology they probably could have built Android and like shipped Linux on ARM and like had a, a you know a mobile phone out before uh, iOS or, or Google took that market um, so I don't know this is like a tough thing like you have businesses that are uh, have a profit motive, and they have a you know like strategy to protect their revenues, right? And if there's something that's free, that's community driven, that's attacking those revenues, what do they do, right? Like <laughs> how do, how do they operate? And you see that right now with like banks and and crypto. No one no one's gonna charge you twelve bucks a month to maintain an account on Ethereum or Solana, right? Like that would be stupid. <laughs> yeah. Seem a little counterproductive uh, at this point. Um, let me. Do you have any opinions on just talking about like Web two uh, in general about the disruptive potential of you know what we're building here in crypto compared to those industries? Because so everyone focuses on the banks, right? Everyone wants to see like uh, down with the banks, but like I personally am kind of like what is happening here seems almost more disruptive to like Facebook and Google in a weird way. Like I'm not sure as many people have drawn that connection, but I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, there's like almost. Um... To kind of like par to parody the micro you know Microsoft tax free PC, we can build like a ad exchange free web stack where there's a website, there's a social network, people interact with it, and the platform can monetize without ads. Like it literally does not give a cent to Google, Facebook, or any of the ad ad advertisement Web two companies. And if we can exclude them right from this activity. Um, that could be the basis of something interesting, like in the future, if you can scale it. Um, so yeah, I, I honestly think that's like one of the most disruptive parts about crypto. Um, you kind of see this with like NFTs. Um, it's like 1.2 million NFTs have been minted on Solana. I think they're like over a billion dollars worth of NFTs is another way to put it. It <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Nuts, but those man. are social networks. Yeah. Those are like people that get together on Discord, on Reddit, around a, a silly idea like being part of the like the monkey and bs group and 
it doesn't matter where they actually communicate, but that membership, right? I'm part of this city, a part of this part of this network now. That's monetizable by whoever wants to include that community, build you know decentralized applications for them, and there's no way that you're gonna like make money of ads there more than you can make from just building awesome shit for the monkey and BS group. Yeah, I mean, to me, like one of my sort of not beefs, but I always push back on people and they say it's like the innovation that we're seeing today. You know, the internet is like more than any period of time that we've ever been through in history. It's like, is it? Is it, dude? Like, I know I've got my phone now and everything, but... I'll, I'll take antibiotics. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but I'll take, I'll take running water, you know? What about an airplane, man? What about an airplane? Imagine that never having occurred in human history and giant metal birds, you know, flying through the sky. It's pretty incredible. Um, So, I don't know. I, um, you know, I was looking at not to call anyone out, but there's a pretty well-known like Silicon Valley kind of VC and he made a lot of his money on Facebook and he's kind of defending Facebook. He actually said that the crime of Facebook was being too introspective. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? This is going to hit so badly. I can't believe you tweeted that. I couldn't believe it. And like, I, um, yeah, I just think, you know, I, I heard you, Anatoly, in another interview, you were talking about, um, it's hard to compete with just the amount, the sheer amount of engineering spend at one of these large companies. But you can see that flipping too, right? Where everything is open source. It's this sandbox model. People just want to build because they know it's a it's a freer design space, right? Than like a, a walled garden that they would find at like a Google or a Facebook or an Apple. And, you know, in 10 years time, you could see that completely flipping. And it's like, well, you know, what am I going to spend? $20 billion? I've got half the world, uh, you know, building on uh, Solana. So I don't know. I just... Uh, I feel like people don't draw that connection a lot, but uh, I feel like it's one to highlight for sure. Uh, the thing is that like we can't like just do it all ourselves, right? Like that this is the kind of the challenge that Linux had in the nineties where there was no organization that could make enough money from Linux or Linux sales competing with Microsoft to where they can hire the same level of engineers. So because the idea was we're giving out this product for free and like it's cool because it's open source and it's collaborative and everyone's just having fun. Um, and it's hard to scale that, but it's also its power because you can't kill something where people are going to work on it over the weekend because they think it's cool. Like it's basically unkillable, right? So that, that makes yeah. it a, a slow kind of burn kind of, kind of game. Um, but the weird thing is that like crypto is monetizable and is really, really accelerating things. Like, I don't think we would have seen this level of adoption without, um, like the level of liquidity that crypto has with Bitcoin and all the other assets. You know, uh, again, walking collection of quotes from different podcasts, but, uh, you know, there's an interview Fred Wilson gave back in like 2017, 2018. And he, I think he just kind of nailed it. He was like, uh, this is uh, open source uh, with, a, with an ability to monetize. And the weapon that Solana has and Ethereum has and Avalanche has, it's disposable that, or disposal that no one had before, was a, a token and a way to monetize. And that's a whole other incentive scheme and structure that might be really effective uh, for onboarding much larger people than uh, ways of people than, than Linux I was able to offer. Um, so one area of crypto, uh, if you could start to divide it into sectors that hasn't done super well over the course of the last, uh, say, like nine months or something like that, it's kind of like the blue chip DeFi sector, right? So like Uniswap, Sushi, Aave, etc. Any thoughts on why that might be? Um, they haven't done well. Like I guess I don't I don't know how do we measure well. Oh, are you putting right. that, are you measuring that by price, Mike? Yeah, I am measuring it. Yeah, I'm I'm not fault tracking that as much as I am. Like, holy shit, Uniswap has more volumes than Coinbase. 
or DYDX now has more, more volumes than like a lot of the sexes. I think if their price is not catching up to that, just means that, you know, it was overvalued before or the speculative belief that it was going to get here was much higher than um, the amount of time it took to get here. You know, some, some mismatch between price, time, money allocation, right? But it doesn't mean that mm. their core thing that they're supposed to disrupt isn't growing like, like crazy. Um, I mean, you could probably draw an analogy to when Solana ran up from a buck fifty to one fifty, right? It's like it's not like Solana got a hundred times better in yeah. two, three, in six months. It's that the market probably caught up to what Solana was doing, or, or, or there's a price there was a price mismatch, right? Yeah. So, what what I'm kind of suspecting is that like uh, like most things, it's not going to replace the incumbents. It's just going to outgrow them faster than the incumbents can catch up. Google killed the New York Times or whatever. <laughs> the online media news, blogging, Twitter, etc. all those things grew so much faster than traditional media companies could catch up that they're now, you know, a small fraction of, of what they used to be. Well, here I feel chastised <laughs> talking about price. <laughs> damn it, Mike. Damn. Get, back, damn get back in your price corner. <laughs> I just don't follow. I just, the only price I really follow, you know, obviously sold on Bitcoin. Bitcoin's kind of interesting because it's, you know, it's the Papa Bear. <laughs> yeah. um, Anatoly, are you having a lot of conversations with folks like the Sam Bankman Freeds of the world who run maybe centralized companies, whether it's centralized consumer apps or exchanges, and they realize that their you know, lunch is going to get eaten by a DEX or by a decentralized lend and borrow protocol? Um Sam is pretty, both, I would say both Sam and CZ are like really smart. And this is why Binance Smart Chain was built. And um, they wanted to see something like Serum, which is uh, their idealized version of a of a of DeFi, Central Limit Order Book, which is what they understand. Yeah. And they were willing to go like basically incubate and build that thing, even though it's somewhat competitive with the core of what a FTX does. Right, so that that took some vision there. Um, that's pretty cool on, on Sam's part. I think like the weird thing about like some company like FTX and a centralized exchange like I don't know E, e Trade or or like Robinhood um, is that the amount of players that take a cut in that like centralized traditional finance is like close to ten, like the the broker the like the order routers, et cetera, et cetera, right? By the time it gets to like an actual trade, 10 people have taken like a small slice. In a sex, there's maybe like two, the chain itself and the centralized exchange, right? They kind of control the, the entire stack. So they're already like, you know, 100x ahead of what anybody else can do in traditional finance. So like convincing traditional finance people to like go... Get rid of all your all, of all your people, all your partners is like telling Ford that okay, all the people that make parts for your gas engine, you don't need them anymore. Just stick an electric motor there and some batteries, and you're good to go. It's just it's just like they are not like in position managerially, like financially and and like ambition wise to do that. I remember this one story of Coinbase from um, I think it was 20, uh, 2018 when the market really fell out, and then twenty nineteen. The entire board of Coinbase really wanted Coinbase to get into enterprise blockchain. And 
they were like, let's start building for the enterprise blockchain crowd. And thankful, I mean, honestly, props to Brian Armstrong said, no, that's an idiotic idea. So <laughs> I wonder if, uh, I don't, I'm not trying to compare, compare DeFi to enterprise blockchain. That's probably what it sounded like. But It wouldn't have mattered because there was no enterprise blockchain. It's not yeah, like... Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, do you th- so like you mentioned at like 10 minutes into the conversation, like eventually there will be a, a Stripe chain and an Amazon chain. Is that not just the modern day version of the Walmart like on the blockchain? I think it's more, uh, I would say conceptually, there's such a thing. But they have made... If Stripe doesn't build it, somebody will build a blockchain-based solution that's competing with them, and then they might start seeing their like actual volumes and and like users leaving them, and mm-hmm. that's a. We'll see if that happens. You know, these are like th- these are mites, right? I don't I don't know what the world looks like. Are you gonna have a? Uh, we went from like a Web two companies uh, creating APIs for everything, right? For banks, for whatever. Like all these things now have a. HTTP get put API um, with with crypto like smart contracts it's a runtime I don't just have an API I can then load my own code and execute inside that environment with their financial assets under my control right through the rules of the smart contract are people actually going to do that I don't know like Binance was like F it let's just do it <laughs> right <laughs> they were yeah, yeah. They, they didn't ask questions they just wanted to build it um a lot more people would be asking questions at a at a you know public traded company in the US to ship that you know one of the knocks on kind of crypto in general um is that it's almost like kind of this big self-contained bubble and actually one of the things that i'm most interested in is these new like defi 2.0 uh, type projects they're actually solving problems that other defi companies are having which is just like fascinating but it still does you know, if you were a skeptic, you could kind of point to this and be like, it's all self-contained. They're just solving problems within this ecosystem. When is it going to start solving real world problems for me? And I guess like, how do you think about, because unless we think that every single company in the real world is just going to get disrupted and only crypto companies will make it, that's not really my base case. Like, when do you think that crypto and like the real world, the Venn diagram starts to kind of move closer and closer together? I think as crypto starts outgrowing the real world, like, I, I don't mm. think, like, how do you convince somebody that, like, even Google, hey, look, here's a web stack that you cannot monetize. Everything that you're doing now, we built something that excludes you. <laughs> you should go yeah. invest engineering time into yeah. this, right? Similar with a bank, right? You know how you guys charge 12 bucks a month and then charge overdraft fees? We built a thing that prevents you from doing that ever. <laughs> right like they're like they're not gonna like it right we built a thing that like makes sure that you all the everything that you do for risk management that entire stack of people you don't need them anymore here's a piece of code that does it right (laughs) like um you saw this in the internet you saw people kind of doubting what is the value of the internet these internet-based economies are kind of all bullshit and that a lot of the companies, even the idea that you could have like a, a company whose business was on providing services to other internet companies, that seemed as like this kind of self-referential crap yeah, that was driven by, right. you know, um, stock prices and nothing more. So you'll see that like, you'll see that narrative play out. And then as crypto just kind of grows and matures, it'll outpace the rest of the world. So. Kyle, who I know, you know, through uh, Multicoin, like he, you know, I've kind of heard him say analogies are imperfect and therefore kind of always wrong. 
I will say, looking back on the early days of the internet feels like a pretty appropriate analogy uh, to compare to crypto, just in like the vast amount of disbelief that there was and then how influential it eventually became. Like, look at the S&P 500. It's like the top 10 companies, like seven of them, uh, right, are like tech or internet companies that got birthed in, or right after the dot-com era. You know, you actually lived a lot of that, right? I kind of refer to it in theory. Uh, so like, how appropriate do you think that analogy is? Like, what parts of that are accurate when people compare crypto to the internet? And then what parts are like, eh, maybe that might be wrong or it could be play it a little differently this time. Yeah, I would say the accurate part is that um, it's still like really small number of users. Like how many users in the in crypto right now do you think actually know how to self-custody and, and to like sign something, even if, even if it's just a Bitcoin transfer? Wow. It's maybe at most 10 million. So at some point in, in the Internet's life, you had 10 million people that understood what a browser was, what a link was. And that's really where we're at comparatively. And people often say, like, well, why don't we just, like, hide the cryptographic keys? Why don't we hide, like, what crypto is? Um, you end up with, like, things like AOL keywords, right? You, like, try to hide what a browser is. You try to hide what links are. Do people just want that data presented to them? Are they actually searching for, you know, like, that information, right, to print out? Like, <laughs> or are they browsing? Uh, this idea of browsing, like, didn't, right, yeah. didn't like click right it, people didn't see it as like mm. a a form of this like collaborative media and shared state and like i think when people look at crypto i think what they're missing is that it's this evolution of this shared state you know one giant internet we're all playing this one single game uh, with cryptography to give meaning to ownership and things like that so the pace of adoption i feel like is going to match the number of people that actually know how to sign shit to the same level they know what a browser is. So when we get to 100, 200 million of those, you'll start seeing business models um, that were unexpected and obvious in retrospect, just like social networking was. But I trying to predict like, what is that gonna look like is like me trying to predict Facebook in 1994, and it's gonna be worth a trillion dollars sharing pictures of your cats. Good luck predicting, uh, it, predicting Snapchat in like yeah. 2000. I was gonna say Snapchat. Snapchat. just the weirdest Imagine one. Imagine trying to even it's describe the weirdest one. Snapchat, Snapchat and Uber are the two weirdest ones. It's like yeah. getting in a stranger's car, using this thing in your pocket. Like, yeah. But Uber, people would at least buy the premise. They're like, okay, I like get it, but it would never happen because of like strangers on the internet. Snapchat's like, imagine trying to explain yeah. <laughs> to someone in 1995, there's going to be a company, you're going to send a photo, and it disappears in 10 seconds, the company's going to be worth $400 yeah. billion. <laughs> You'd be like, what? It disappears? <laughs> the photo? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Why is that worth anything? <laughs> what? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anatoly, one quick, uh, we've done a lot of like long-term predictions here, short-term prediction for you. I saw Phantom had like, I think was growing 100,000 users a week. It's up to like seven or 800,000 users. Where do you think Phantom ends the year at? How many users? Two million. Two million? Five million. No, five million. Five million. Five million. Five million. Yeah, five five million. Million. Five million. In two and a half months. We like the big <laughs> predictions. We like the big predictions. <laughs> we like them. I love it. Awesome. Uh, I got one more for you that you're going to hate, which is sure. uh, Bring it on. right now ETH is, I think ETH to Solana market caps like 10 to 1. You willing to throw out a end of this cycle? Uh, I don't care. I, honestly, I know you don't matter. care, but will you give us a prediction? I will say that uh, I predict that the cost of state on Solana is going to be even 100 times cheaper than uh, what it is today. 
That's a, that's a, your, your, com, your comms team Fair loves enough. you for that response right now. Yeah, your comms team, they're like watching like, oh my God. Now stuck the landing, yeah. baby, stuck the landing. Cool. Mike, you got anything else? No. Awesome. No. It's been a lot of fun, man. It's, yeah, great. Just honestly, congrats on all the success. Sure. It's been awesome to hear your perspective. Yeah, wish you all the continued success too. All right, thank you guys. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Totally. Cool.